Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller. And this programme from the Archive features an interview I recorded with Jeremy Minot to find out how birds permeate not just our physical landscape, but our mental one. We have dream fantasies, don't we, of flying, and birds are part of a, a sort of third realm that we can't quite enter, the realm of the air. Angels have wings, as birds do. We project a great deal onto this power of flight. Birds are quick their way one moment and they're the next. They travel vast distances on their migrations. And I think that plays into the human imagination in um, literature, art, and in common human responses to birds. Jeremy's book makes his personal reflections on a lifelong passion for watching birds and a wider exploration of how we imagine and depict them. But we started with the practical What makes him get up before the sun to go and stand in a field, notebook in hand, to wait for the avian world to wake up? Well, I've always had a particular interest in bird song. Um, It seems to me a feature of birds that is generally underrepresented in writings about birds and people's experience of birds. In fact, sound and song for birds is at least as important for them as is their visual appearance, I think. And if you become experienced in listening to birds and identifying birds by sound, you find that you're moving through a world of of meaning of a quite different kind than you usually experience. You can learn to distinguish between calls that are feeding calls, alarm calls, song, courtship song, and you begin to understand what's going on in the environment. And song is so much more pervasive and perceptible than the bird's visual appearances because, as you know, sound goes round things, through things, over things, and in almost every environment where you might want to watch birds, apart only, I think, from the rather specialised pursuit of sea-watching, where you're looking at birds a mile out to shore flying past, or watching raptors perhaps in a mountain, in almost every other environment you actually hear more than you see. So I've got a special general interest in in listening to birds. The dawn chorus is just a very exciting, dramatic event. You do know in a general way what's going to happen, but you're keyed up rather for a theatre performance. Um, I know roughly which birds are going to come in first, but I don't quite know how it will go that particular morning. It does vary a bit according to the weather conditions and no doubt the conditions of the birds themselves. So there's a sense of excitement, there's a sense of pleasure in exercising a skill I do now know 
pretty much all the um, songs and calls of British birds. I find bird sounds and songs beautiful in themselves, and that's another pleasure. Approaching birds through the medium of sound gives you a kind of privileged access that I think many people are unaware of. The book isn't so much about the world of birds in a self-contained way as about how humans have interacted with that world or been fascinated by that world. And you go as far back as the the world of the um, ancient Greeks and Romans. Can you see threads of continuity that go right from the ancient world up to the present day in the way that humans have responded to the avian world? Yes, I think I can see threads. And they tend to be threads in not so much our perception of birds, but what we do with birds. If I can just come back to your question via the title of the book, I call the book Birdscapes, Birds in Our Imagination and Experience. And the title Birdscapes is a deliberate play, of course, on landscapes. And um, it's just worth exploring that analogy a little bit further. Landscapes are things that are composed of items that are physically out there, products of geology and hard fact. But they're also products of human imaginations, what we project onto those scenes and landscapes. And of course we know that the word landscape is actually a relatively recent invention in human cultural history. Landscapes only became known as landscapes in the, um, what, the 18th and the 19th centuries, really. And I think it's the same with birds. Birds are biological objects, they're species, they're physically out there. You can make perceptions of birds and discriminations between them and you can study their behaviour and learn to identify um, them by their physical differences. But they're also items onto which we project things through human associations and through the human imagination. And I think the threads that run from the Greeks to the modern world are the threads in that kind of appreciation, in the symbolic use we make of birds and the things we project onto birds. I have a section in the book which deals with birds as symbols. And indeed, I do start with augury and the Greeks, the Greeks using the birds as messengers, as means of understanding the world. And of course, we do the same thing through the emblematic use we make of birds in artefacts, in our national symbols, postage stamps, flags, and I have many examples of these. And some of these become politically very important in that birds often become national symbols through their use on coins, or in the case of the United States, the national bird, the bald eagle, which is part of the the national coat of arms. So I think that's the thread that runs from the earliest times to the later times, the symbolic metaphorical use of birds. In that way, the book is indeed at least as much about ourselves as about birds. Would it be fair to say that although animals have potency as symbols in human culture, birds actually have more potency? And if if that's true, can you say why you think that might be? That's a very interesting question. Um, The answer that occurs to me immediately is the main difference between birds and most animals, most birds and most animals, I should say, is the power of flight and the the animation and sense of movement that goes with flight. And I think that does have a peculiar fascination for human beings. We have dream fantasies, don't we, of flying. Freud made a great deal of this with um, exciting and uh, extravagant interpretations of what that might mean. And birds are part of a a sort of third realm that we can't quite enter, the, the realm of the air. Angels have wings, as birds do. 
we project a great deal onto this power of flight and I think that's a very key distinction between um, birds and animals. Birds are quick, they're away one moment and they're the next. They travel vast distances on their migrations, whereas animals like ourselves are bound to the earth. And I think that plays into the human imagination in all kinds of way in um, literature, art and in common human responses to birds. And we also discriminate between birds, don't we? So different species of birds have very, very different kind of emblematic, symbolic histories and functions. Absolutely. Think of the differences in our culture and other cultures of birds like the swallow, the crane, the eagle, the stork, the penguin, the raven. There are birds of ill omen and birds of good omen. And many of them are surprisingly constant or seem to be quite constant through different cultures. And you say you find the same stories, anecdotes and descriptions and misdescriptions appearing in different times and different places, which may not actually suggest archetypes or anything that could be explained in quite those psychological terms. But there are interesting, if not universal, very common themes to the use we make of birds. One of the... Um games you play in the book is to think about popular birds because one can almost sort of yes. construct league tables of birds in terms of their, their popular appeal. I'm interested first in why we respond to birds as such and we've talked a bit about that, why birds rather than animals and I think the answer to that is broadly that they're very like us in some ways or seem to be but also very unlike us in some ways and that combination of similarities and dissimilarities is what makes them both fascinating and, and, and very suitable material for mythological or symbolic exploitation. But we also have our favourites among birds, and I'm interested in why we favour or like some birds more than others. If you do a poll, a national poll in Britain, the same birds always come out in the top ten. The robin, the skylark, the blackbird, the song thrush, the golden eagle, the kingfisher, the swan, and so on and so forth. That I find interesting because the, the reasons why these birds may be popular I think is different in different cases. But in many cases you can sort of undermine it once you start examining the true nature of these birds. I mean take the case of the robin which is um, top of every poll that's ever done and an absolute uh, a national favourite. Now this is so in Britain but it's not so in Europe where the robin is not a garden bird, a tame bird, but a wild bird of the woods. If you go bird watching in Europe, you'll very rarely see a robin. You hear it as a kind of fugitive sound in a forest and you can track it down and it seems like a very rare and wild bird. In Britain, of course, we've domesticated it, at least in our minds, and we've invested it with qualities like friendliness, cuteness. But of course, robins are savage creatures. There's a famous um, monograph on robins by the ornithologist David Lack called The Life of the Robin which revealed for the first time to a slightly startled public that robins are extraordinarily aggressive creatures. They cannot tolerate each other and have very fierce territorial disputes. And the red breast, of course, is a marker, um, a marker of courtship and of display. And a robin will ruthlessly attack a piece of red cotton if you hung it up, thinking that it might be a red breast and therefore a robin. With all the other species I mentioned as common species, I could describe features of their real behaviour or their real character, if you want to use that word, that would tend to undermine their iconic status as favourites. I'm also interested in the notion of, of charisma. 
which we apply to people. We apply it very superficially and uh, far too freely to people. But we all know what we mean when we talk of Muhammad Ali as being charismatic. Or say, I think I give the example in the book of American presidents. One says John F. Kennedy was charismatic. And we, we all are coming to think that Barack Obama is charismatic. But no one would have called Gerald Ford charismatic. Or Carter or Eisenhower, I suppose. Now, what is it that makes charisma in people? And what is it that makes charisma in birds? Um, bird watchers themselves have, they would think, I think, a somewhat more sophisticated notion of what their own favourites are than the common birds I mentioned. But bird watchers' favourites, which they tend to call charismatic, would include, in Britain, birds like the nightjar, the barn owl. For me, the capercaillie, the leech's petrel, birds of wild and exotic places which it's hard work to go and find, difficult to get to, or like the red kite, which have important associations in history, which were once rare and endangered, down to something like 30 pairs in the UK, that now, of course, have become common again, thanks to various reintroduction schemes. Does that mean that its status is going to change as a charismatic bird? Will we feel about it differently now that we have ourselves and artificially, quite artificially, reintroduced it to various places. Interesting question. You mentioned rarity there as one of the the criteria that some bird watchers might apply to their favourites. And that brings me to the the pursuit of bird watching. And from the book it seems clear that bird watching is a very broad church which extends from quite serious naturalists at one end to what one one might perhaps disparagingly refer to as sort of glorified train spotting at the other. Can you say something about what you think animates some of those activities? There is a huge interest in finding unusual birds and rare birds and the more obsessive practitioners of that, which are generally called who are generally called twitches, present a ludicrous spectacle in fact. Um, I mean these are people who are concerned only with finding and adding to their lists new birds they haven't seen or at least haven't seen in that place or at that time or in that year and the moment you start adding those qualifications one begins to see how relative and actually how rather absurd that whole process is if I looked out of the window now in a February day and saw a swift that would be an extraordinarily rare bird in Cambridge at this moment in June and July I couldn't look out of the window and not see a swift they're there all the time. So why should it suddenly be interesting in February when it's not interesting in August? Or why should a hoopoo be interesting when it turns up on Buckingham Palace lawns, but um, not if you're in the south of France? These are just relative questions, and rarity isn't an intrinsic quality of birds. However, there is a real pleasure in seeing unusual birds, and one has to confess to it. Nearly every bird watcher of any stripe at all has started by looking for new birds, making lists and counting the number of different birds they found. And of course, it takes great skill beyond a certain point to augment the number of birds that you have seen and successfully identified that way. The most dedicated and serious of the twitches are extraordinarily skillful people, extraordinarily skillful and experienced, and can make fine discriminations at a distance that would be quite invisible to um, the ordinary person. So it is a very high level of skill, but it's also a very high level of obsession. And I do have a bit of fun about that in the book. I construct a rather playful little um, table, which I call the Linnaeus table, modelled on the Beaufort scale. Uh, The Beaufort scale, of course, lists 
wind forces and observable physical effects that can be associated with those wind forces. I list a sort of Beaufort scale of emotions in, in bird watchers and rank birds from very common ones to very rare ones and suggest the behaviour traits that can be um, assigned to each of those species. Jeremy Minot. His book, Birdscapes, is available from Princeton University Press. You can find out more about it on their website. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.